Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Uh, I, I finally am starting to feel like it's, it's Christmas. Maybe I'm kind of late to the party and all of you are just about fed up with Christmas at this point. I hope not. Goodness, kids are starting to get out of school. Uh, I took my last final exam the other night. I feel huge relief off my shoulders. And so uh, I feel like Christmas is here. Hallelujah, it's fun. It's, it's excellent. It's great. It's a good time of year. I, I like the Christmas season. At, at, there's some things about it that I get a little frustrating, makes me a little anxious. But what I love about the Christmas season is I love the decorations. I love to go see Christmas lights. And, and if I, I remember as a, as a kid, so I mean, it's not been that long, but it's been a while. But my mom, would, my dad would take me out and we'd walk the streets of our neighborhood just looking for houses that have lights on them, and we'd stand there and just enjoy the lights. And so one of my favorite things to do at Christmas time is to go and enjoy the lights. And I love to see all of the, you know, nowadays we've got like the projections on the houses, and we've got, you know, these great programmers that program and choreograph music to go along with the lights and all that stuff. And, and I, I'm so thankful that other people love to do that, because uh, I, <laughs> I would never do that. But I love to go watch it. I think it's great. And as much as I love lights, unfortunately, if you were to come to my house and drive by, we've got all kinds of great lights inside, but it's kind of sad to say this year we don't have any lights on our house. I think I'm just too, of a, too much of a chicken to get up on the roof and, and get those lights on the, on the gutters. But uh, anyway, I love to look at Christmas lights. They're fantastic. And so I just wanted to share a little, little trivia with you. Um, Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, this is as of November 28, 2014. They, they went to a residence in New York uh, to a family that uh, got in the Guinness of World, uh, Book of World Records for the most Christmas lights, the most Christmas lights on one single residence. And, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was reading this and I thought, well, you know, what, 50,000 lights or 100,000 lights or, I mean, maybe like a 250,000 lights. That's a quarter of a million lights. That's a ton of lights. And, but, but, but as I read the article about the Guinness World Book of Records, most lights on a single residence, the gay family of LaGrangeville, New York had 601,736 lights on their residence. 601, that's over a half million lights on one residence. Now, if I were that family, I would have buckets laid out all over the property for donations to pay for that electric bill. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's, that's insane. I mean, it's probably, they probably finished that last bite of hot dog on the 4th of July. And like, all right, well, I got to go. I got to start putting my lights up for my Christmas, Christmas lights. That's a lot of lights. And uh, I, I love it. I mean, there's shows on TV, the light fight and all that stuff, and people get really competitive about it. It's kind of crazy. Uh, but it's amazing to see, and I love to see the lights. And, and I think that's the thing that's special about the, the Christmas lights this time of year is because we've got a dark season. Our nights are very long, and our days are very short. It wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to have these lights shining in a light time of year in late spring or summertime because you wouldn't really get to enjoy them very much. It wouldn't make sense to turn on lights at, at, at 6 o'clock in the evening in June because you wouldn't even see them because it's light outside. But at this time of year, because of the darkness, you can see the light standing out, and it's just beautiful to see, and I absolutely love it. Love to see the Christmas lights in this dark season. 
leads me into what we're going to be talking about today, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, it's on page 489 of, of the Pew Bibles that we've got provided for you, so I invite you to turn there. We'll be thinking about light and darkness. The prophet Isaiah was called by God to go speak and prophesy and proclaim forth God's message to his people in a very, very dark time of their existence. A very dark time. In fact, Isaiah was called to be a prophet, to be a spokesperson for God, his mouthpiece to, to the people. And in Isaiah chapter 6, it, it has Isaiah uh, taken up in a vision into the throne room of God. And, and as, as he sees God in his holiness, he recognizes his own sin God cleanses his lips and then he calls him and says, Isaiah, I want you to be my man, to go and share my word and tell my word to my people. But here's the thing about this, Isaiah. You're going to go preach to a people that are living in darkness. You're going to go talk to them about my word. You're going to give them my word, but they're not going to have ears to hear. They're not going to have eyes to see. They're going to be living in darkness and blindness. Could you imagine signing up for that assignment? You're going to go preach to a people that are not going to listen to what you have to say. They're not going to respond to the message that you're going to deliver from me to them. They're going to reject it time and time again. But yet, Isaiah, I still want you to go because I've got a message of judgment and a message of hope. A message that darkness is coming, but a message that there will be light and there will be hope. So Isaiah was called to, to preach to a people, a rebellious people in a period of deep darkness. This darkness showed up primarily in three ways for God's people. You got to understand something. The, the kingdom of Israel was split in two after Solomon, King Solomon died. And so uh, during the time of Isaiah, we've got the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's ministering there in Jerusalem. And there's the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel, oh, they led the way in darkness and idolatry. They were worshiping idols, worshiping false gods. They were intermingling the worship of Yahweh with the worship of idols. But Jerusalem and Judah, they weren't far behind. They were very wicked as well. And so there were three primary ways that this was such a dark time. The first was political. It was a political darkness. See, God said, I'm going to set you up, Israel, as a nation, and I'm always going to protect you. You will never have to worry about protection. You'll never have to worry about the nations around you. The nations around you are going to come and serve you if, if you obey my laws, if you keep my covenant. But yet the people, they rebelled against God's covenant. And because of that, there were nations around them that were right on their doorstep, breathing down their neck, ready, ready to take charge and ready to break down the walls of Jerusalem and ready to dethrone God's man off of God's throne. So it's political darkness. In fact, the kingdom of Israel, uh, the king there, he was, he was making an alignment and an alliance with the king of Aram. And so together, they were going to come and they were going to tag team together and take down the people of Judah. And God says, yeah, but you can worry about them, but I've got another nation, the kingdom of Assyria that's, that's rising up in the north. And they're going to come and they're going to deliver you for a moment, but they're also going to come and they're going to bring some darkness in your land as well. Political unrest. Political unrest, political darkness 
They didn't feel safe. They didn't feel secure. They didn't know. In fact, the leader, the king that they have, he had, he was a wicked king as well. The people of Judah and Jerusalem were living under a period of political darkness. Well, not only was it dark politically, it was dark socially. There was a social darkness that permeated in the land. You see, those that had the wealth, those that had the power, were, were, were taking advantage of those who were on the fringes of society. There were those, there were widows and orphans that could not care for themselves. There were those that were impoverished and, and were starving and were starving and were dying. And yet people, the people of Judah, had no care for those that were suffering. Those that were suffering. There was no justice for the poor. There was no justice for the widow. There was no justice for the orphan. And, and Isaiah time and time again keeps bringing it up. You people are living in darkness. Look at what you're doing to those in your midst that cannot protect themselves. There was a darkness. There was a helplessness for those that were living in, pover in poverty. There is no hope for us. It is a dark, dark time. Well, there was darkness politically, there was darkness socially, but above all that, there was a spiritual and religious darkness that permeated the land. The people were given over to idols. They, they, they were tempted in their hearts. They saw what the nations around them would do. They'd set up these idols. They'd bow down and worship these idols, but God had proven himself over and over again. If, they, if All they had to do was open their scriptures to remember how God had delivered them right there on the Red Sea at the time of the Exodus, how he delivered his people from slavery. He had done miraculous signs and wonders to prove that he's the one true God, but yet their hearts, just like many of our hearts, are quick to forget get, are quick to abandon the one true God. And so they started to bow down to idols. And if you were to go to the temple at this time thinking, I'm going to go and offer my sacrifices to the one true God, what you would see is a temple full of idols, full of idolatry. And not only was it idolatry, it was, it was pagan idolatry, full of sexual immorality that was conjoined with the idolatry of the day and, and even human sacrifice, something that God never, ever would have commanded his people to do. It was a dark time. Politically, socially, spiritually, the people had broken the covenant that God had made with them through Moses. Oh, he had promised them so much, but he also warned them, if you break this covenant, I will judge you, I will punish you. And Isaiah was God's mouthpiece after the people had rebelled against God to come and say, judgment is coming. It's a dark time, a dark time. Well, in our chapter, Isaiah 9, and, and we're actually going to look at Isaiah 19, as, uh, excuse me, 8 verse 19 is where we're going to begin. But in this section, Isaiah is speaking the word of God to Ahaz, king of Judah. Like I had said before, the king of, of Israel in the north had allied with the king of Aram, and together they sought to defeat Ahaz and to take Jerusalem and to take Judah. But in chapter 7, verse 2, we see how the people felt about all that was going on. It says in Isaiah 7, 2, when they heard about the alliance, the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. 
Indeed, these were really dark days for God's people. But in the midst of the darkness, in, midst, in the midst of all the political turmoil, in, mid, in the midst of all the social injustice, in midst of all of the spiritual and religious idolatry and darkness, God promised a glimmer of light. God promised a ray of hope. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, and we'll read through chapter 9, verse 7. Follow along as I read aloud. It says this, Isaiah 8, 19, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. When they look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Do you see the picture? Do you see the darkness? Do you feel the pressure? Chapter 9, verse 1 begins this way. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And then he breaks out into poetry. There's this glimmer of hope. There's this, this light that we can see in the midst of the darkness. And all he can do is just write poetic language about the beauty of this light that's coming. And in chapter 9, verse 2, he begins this way. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as the people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A glimmer of hope. A little bit of dawn in the midst of the darkness. And it caused Isaiah to sing a song of poetry right back to God. God, you're giving us a glimmer of hope in the midst of these dark days. But in order to truly appreciate the impact of the light that was coming, we've got to understand, how did this darkness feel? 
What did it feel like to, to those that were living in this time in Judah and in Jerusalem? Well, first Isaiah describes it as distress, as anguish and pain. They just live under distress. It also says that it's deep darkness. It's actually like a death shadow is the way the Bible puts it. It's, a, it's this shadow of death that is just cast over the whole land, that's cast over the people. They could feel it. They could sense it. I'm sure they could feel it down into their very core, into their bones, this deep death shadow. He goes on to, to describe it as fearful gloom. Gloom. Maybe you, you sense that when we have, you know, two or three gray days in a row around here. You know, we're so spoiled with so much sunshine. And, you know, after a few days of rain, you just kind of feel gloomy. But this was a, a fearful, intense gloom, hopelessness, anguish, deep darkness, the kind of darkness that you could feel. A few months ago, I got to take a vacation up to Oregon. We went to Bend, Oregon, and uh, Sun River it was gorgeous. And so uh, they've got some lava tubes there that you can go and you can hike through. And so we went to this lava tube, and it was great, but it's like, it's like a mile walk. From the time you get into the opening of the cave, you go down and you go out, and, and you just you walk for a mile. And it's amazing. You can't, you can't just take your cell phone and say, oh, I'm just going to turn on my little you know, flashlight there. It does almost nothing to light your way. I mean, that's how dark it is. You've got to have an intense, bright uh, flashlight in order to be able to see where you're going. And so I, I wanted to kind of really get a sense of what this darkness really felt like. So I sent my wife, Laura, I said, I want you to go a ways around the corner. And, and when you get off, I'm going to turn off my flashlight. Because I just, I want to, what is it like when no one's here? And, and maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've been in an experience like this. I mean, I put my, you know, this very white hand, like, right in front of my face. And I keep waiting to, you know, figure out, can I even see a little bit of my palm? And eventually, <laughs> I hit myself in the head. I could not see my hand. I mean, this darkness was so deep and so thick, you could feel it. It felt like this blanket that was covering you. Deep, deep darkness. This is what Isaiah is describing about his people in this time. Deep darkness. Fearful gloom. Fearful gloom. Distress and anguish. This was not a darkness that you could just see. It was a darkness you could feel. But in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this fearful gloom, in the midst of this distress and this death shadow, Isaiah begins in chapter 9, verse 1, with a word, a word of contrast that says, nevertheless, nevertheless, God was not done with his people. He knew that there were some dark, dark days ahead of them, but he says, nevertheless, I'm not going to forget my people. I'm going to give them hope. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Verse 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep, deep darkness, that death shadow, 
upon them a light has dawned. Maybe you've been there before. That's another experience. Camping with our father-son camping trip. Awesome experience, by the way. You should do it next summer. But we went up to this one camping site, and it was so cold, and you could just feel the darkness and the cold. And all I could wait for is, I can't wait for the sun to come up and warm up my tent because I'm freezing. I was freezing. I can imagine this, how these people felt. When is the dawn going to come? When will it warm our hearts and our souls and bring light to us in the midst of this darkness? But it says here in verse 2 that the people walking in darkness not will see a great light. It doesn't see that, that light will dawn. It says that they have seen a great light, that the light has dawned. God is speaking through Isaiah in the sense that it's almost like it's already happened. You see, this wasn't a, a promise that was conditional, that God was kind of, you know, thinking about. This was something that was certain. It was so certain in his mind that Isaiah could write poetry that it will happen and God will look back and see that the light has dawned. God's people will look back and see that the light has dawned, that the light has come. Nevertheless, in spite of the darkness, God is going to bring the light. It will happen. Well, what did this light mean for God's people? Right there in verse 9, too, we have, it, first of all, it's a removal of the darkness. It's a removal of that death shadow. It's a removal of that fe fearful gloom. When God is going to bring his light, he's going to remove all of that darkness, and there's going to be something new and fresh and warm and bright that will take away all of the fear, all of the distress, and all of the anguish. Well, so the light meant that it was going to be a removal of the darkness. Not only that, verse 3 says that you have enlarged the nation. You see, through God's judgment that was coming, he was actually going to wipe out a huge portion of these people because of their rebellion, because of the sin, because of the choices that they made. But God said, one day you will have an enlarged nation. God is going to do a restorative act you see, the way we live in this world, there's full of death, there's full, it's full of sickness, it's full of cancer, it's full of murder, but God says, one day, I'm going to restore all things and make them new. That's what God does. He's a restoring God. Well, it's going to create in the hearts of the people, it says, you've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. And it says that it's a, the joy is increased and then they're going to rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. It's probably like many of us on payday. Woo, man, got that paycheck. I'm pay off some of those bills. The lights are going to stay on. The water's going to stay hot. And I might be able to put some groceries in the kitchen. Hallelujah, you feel great, right? That day of harvest when God's blessing was coming upon his people, a day of rejoicing, God was going to restore that to them. There'd be restoration. There'd be rejoicing. There'd be a removal of the darkness. They'd be rejoicing as when warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder, feeling the spoils of victory. The spoils of victory. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Well, not only that, verse 4 says that God, this light, through this light, God was going to bring relief 
For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. You could just hear this slavery kind of language, this, this rod of oppression and this yoke, this bar that is across their shoulders. God says when this light comes, it's going to give you oh, relief. Take it from me. Take this broad. Take this, take this yoke of oppression. Take it off me. The people were longing in the midst of the darkness for relief. Give us relief. This light that dawns will bring relief. Finally, it's going to bring them a rescue. A rescue. Verse 5, <coughs> excuse me, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. No more need for war gear any longer because the warrior, the great light, is going to come and he's going to take away all the war and all of the strife. There's going to be a rescue, a great rescue plan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And so we start seeing all of these wonderful benefits of this promise, of this light. But what's the source of this light? This light, where does it come from? I mean, this is amazing hope and amazing news for people living in fearful gloom, for people living under the death shadow, for people living in darkness. They're probably saying, sign me up. Where do we get this? What is the source of that light? Isaiah, in his poem, gives us the reason. Isaiah 9, 6, the source of the light in the midst of the darkness. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. A child. A child. A baby. A, a son is going to be the source of all this light. A child is going to be the one that removes this darkness. I'm amazed by that. You know, I, I lead our kids' ministry, and I, I keep wondering why kids keep surprising me. We underestimate children so much, don't we? They're amazing. They're amazing. And you just got to hang out with them for a little while, and they do something that just blows your mind. Whether it's conceptually, they understand something that you thought, how in the world did they get that? Or, or maybe they do something, you know, like a cartwheel. My daughter does 100 cartwheels in our house a day. I've never done a cartwheel a day in my life. She amazes me. I underestimate her, her strength, her agility. We underestimate children, I think. And I think the irony here is, is that we would be underestimating who is the source of this light. It's got to be this great champion. Oh, it's going to come as a champion. But first, he will be a child, a son, a babe lying in a manger. A child is the source of this light. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is an expectation that God's people had had for a long, long time. They knew that Messiah was coming, and they kept hearing it's coming as a child. 
as a child, there was an expectation of Messiah ever since the time of King David. It goes back further. There was an expectation of Messiah since the time of Moses. It goes back further than that. There was an expectation of this Messiah to the time of Abraham. God told Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the people are waiting and waiting. Oh, but it goes back farther than that. All the way back to Adam and Eve when they first bit the forbidden fruit, and all of humanity, not just the kingdom of Judah, was plunged into darkness because of our rebellion and sin, God told Adam and Eve, there will be a seed that comes from the woman, and he will crush that serpent's head. There's a messianic hope right here when we hear that a child is born, a son is given. Well, what about this child? What about this son? The government will be upon his shoulders. Remember, one of the great aspects of this darkness was that there was political darkness, uncertainty. They didn't know if they were going to remain a free nation or if they would come under the rule and slavery of another nation. But it says here that this son is going to take all of the pressures of the government and he's going to put it on his shoulders. Boy, that sounds refreshing. When was the last time you felt confident about a politician? But here comes this child. Here comes this son. And he says, the government will be on his shoulders. And these shoulders will be strong enough to handle every pressure that can come his way. The government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called. Listen to his names. Listen to the name, the nature of who he is. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now this word for wonder is attributed to God. When you stand in wonder and awe of who he is, you stand in just amazement. And so this is, this is the kind of counsel that isn't just sounds like advice. This is a counsel that you stand and you look at and you realize this is divine counsel. This is divine wisdom. There isn't anything, any man, any leader on this earth that can offer this kind of wisdom. It is a wonderful Wonderful kind of wisdom. He is a wonderful counselor, a wonderful decision maker. He, he has divine wisdom, divine resources. This child, this child that will take the government on his shoulders and he'll be called wonderful counselor. He'll also be called mighty God. This might is a military, victorious kind of strength. He will have military might. There will not be any kinds of bombs, missiles, air force, tanks, swords, spears, shields, chariots that could stand up to the might of this warrior. He is a mighty God. A mighty God. A mighty God. In two chapters before, Isaiah is offering hope to Ahaz. And he says, I'm going to give you a child. And this child's name will be. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Here's the irony, friends. We see that this child looks just like us, sounds just like us. We could touch him. He eats just like us, but there's something totally different about him. He is the mighty God, the mighty God. Who is this child? Who is he? He's a wonderful counselor. 
He's a mighty God. He is Emmanuel. He's coming into the mess. He's coming into the darkness. He's not afraid of all of the deep, fearful gloom. He's not afraid of the darkness. He's not afraid of the distress. He says, I will come as a mighty God, and I'll be in your midst as Emmanuel. He's a wonderful counselor. (coughs) He's a mighty God, and he's an everlasting father. An everlasting Father. Now, we shouldn't confuse this with the person of God the Father. Rather, this is how God's relationship is described for his people. Just like a father cares for, nurtures, loves, protects his children, so also God will be like a loving father to them. And the beauty of this relationship is that it's an unending, unending fatherly relationship. Now, there may be some of you sitting here today that says, the last thing I'll want is another father, a father who abused me, a father who mistreated me, or a father that ignored me and was never there for me one day of my life. I want to tell you, friends, this is not the kind of father we're talking about. We're talking a father that, that, that embraces his children. This is a father that loves his children. This is one who has a deep, unending, everlasting relationship. A father that will never kick you out of the house because he's an everlasting father. You never have to leave his embrace. He's a wonderful counselor, this child. He's a mighty God. He's an everlasting father. And he's a prince of peace. Sar Shalom. A chief of welfare, of peace prosperity. All of the strife that the people were living in, the fighting, the battling, the cursing, all of the darkness, this child is coming and he says, I'm a ruler and I'm a chief of peace, of shalom. You will have shalom. That's the kind of rule that this child is going to have. He's prince of peace. How many of you need peace in your life today? How many of the people in in Isaiah's time would have said, oh, we'd give anything for a chief or a prince of peace? It goes on to say that the greatness of his government and of peace will have no end. No end. You're never going to vote him out. You can never usurp him. He's got a rule that will reign forever, and we will never want to get rid of him. We will never want to impeach this child. He will reign on David's throne. David's throne. This is the throne that, that, that God had promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. He said, your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This child is going to be the one that will fulfill that, to sit on David's throne, to be the one to fulfill the promise that God made to David. Oh, there was turmoil. Oh, there was darkness. But there's going to be a child that sits on the throne and he will never be removed. And I love what it says here. It says that he's going to establish and uphold this this throne with justice and righteousness from that time forth and forever. Justice. Justice. The people of Isaiah's day were longing for justice. Justice. There were those that were were being taken advantage of, those that could not afford bribery to get themselves out of a mess. 
those that were being taken advantage of, orphans, widows, the poor. They longed for justice, but they had no resources to obtain it. It was corrupt. It was a wicked system. And yet this prince of peace, this child comes and he says, there will be no bribery in my kingdom. I will rule with justice. I will rule with righteousness. Think about our day and age, the cries for justice, people marching in the streets, people arguing on television news channels. Where's the justice? Where's the justice? When will the criminals be punished? When will people stop getting away with murder? Where is it? This child will rule with righteousness and justice from that time forth and forever. Finally, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Time and time again, Isaiah says, God is zealous to bring hope and preservation to his people, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will preserve them. God is not indifferent. God is not indifferent about those dwelling in darkness. He is not lending a blind eye to say, I don't care about them. I've got better things to do. In fact, it's the opposite. God is zealous to bring light to those who are walking in darkness. It's his passion. It's his zeal that says, I want to bring light and hope to people who are walking in the death of shadow, who are walking in darkness. How did, this make, how did this make them feel? I would imagine it put them full of hope. Isaiah was so full of hope as this revelation came to him, he couldn't help but write it in poetry or a song. He, he just said, I've got to tell you, God, I can't wait for the light. But see, this is not just Isaiah's story. This is not Judah's story alone. This is not Jerusalem's story alone. You see, Judah's story of rebellion leading to gloom and darkness is not theirs alone. It's all our story. Ever since Genesis, when Adam and Eve took that fruit, we've all been plunged into darkness. We feel it every day. We feel it like a blanket over our souls. Even on our best days, even on our most, the happiest days that we have, there's still a sense that something is not right. When we bury loved ones, when our family and friends hurt us when we hurt them. I mean, even when you go to the happiest place on earth, Disneyland, they tell you, you gotta leave or give us another more money to stay. It doesn't last forever, even on our best days. We are living this story of gloom and darkness and this death shadow. Our bodies get infected with cancer. Girls are sold on the streets Babies are aborted mercilessly every day. Oh, if we think we're living in a time of light, all we got to do is turn on the news and see or talk to a friend who is sick and realize there is darkness that is cast over us. Is there any, gloom, is there any glimmer of hope, any glimmer of light? We're under a cloud of political, social, and spiritual darkness. But God... Nevertheless, God's surprising plan of grace 
and glory for his rebellious people. And sending a child is not for Judah only. It's for the whole world. It's for you. It's for me. This is our story. God has sent light to dawn in our darkness. But we must ask, who is this child? Who is this child? Who is this son? Who is this wonderful counselor? Who is this mighty God? Who is this everlasting father and prince of peace? Who is this source of light? I love it when the Bible interprets itself for us. Boy, I love it. It makes our job really, really easy. We got to find who is this child? Has this child come? Should we continue to wait? Listen to what the gospel writer Matthew said about someone in Matthew chapter 4, 12 to 17. Pick up if you hear any, any uh, similar language or, or if you recognize anything. This is what Matthew says in Matthew 4, 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Friends, Jesus came forward to say, I am the child. I am the son. I am the wonderful counselor. I am the mighty God. I am the everlasting father, and I am the prince of peace. I will take this government upon my shoulders. I will sit on the throne of David. There will be no end to this peace. There will be no end to this reign. God Almighty is zealous to accomplish this. He arrived on the scene, and he said, the child you've been waiting for for 700 years, I am the child. Jesus is the child. Jesus is that child. He is the son. He is the one through whom light has dawned in our darkness. He's come to be our wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He's waiting with open arms as an everlasting father to embrace every single one of us. He's offering to rule your life as your prince of peace. As your prince of peace. Maybe you're here today and you feel the, the deep gloom of darkness. You've got a child that was given to you. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Not that it was a cute story about a baby, but that the miracle and the irony is that this baby, the most unlikely person, the almost unlikely creature, a child, a helpless baby that nurses at its mother's breast, can't walk, can't talk, is the wonderful counselor, is the mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. What do we do with this child, though? This light that's dawned, what, what do we do with it? John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 and 9, 13 says this about this light, about this child. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him though. He came to that which was his own, but his own, they didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. He is the light that has broken into our darkness. He's the light that's pierced into this mess that we live in. And he says, I'm going to get right down into the mess of things, and I'm going to be a wonderful counselor to you. I'm going to be a mighty God to you. I'm going to come through that dark, uh, gloomy fear, and I'm going to be a prince of peace. What do we do with this light? We receive it. I would say to you that we must respond to this light by lifting up our eyes, especially in this Christmas season. Oh, it's time to lift up our eyes. Today, lift up your eyes and embrace the light. Maybe for the first time or the 51st time, I don't know. Come and bow before this Savior. Come and bow before this child today. Give him all of your allegiance. He deserves it all. Today he wants to be your wonderful counselor. He wants to be your mighty God, your everlasting father, and your prince of peace. We're going to sing in just a moment, and I invite you just to just to adore this child, just to adore this great God, the splendor of this king. He's absolutely amazing. And for those of you that for the first time have realized the darkness that you've been living in, maybe you're just like the people of Judah, walking in darkness and fearful gloom, but today for the first time in this child, you've seen a light and you want to respond today by lifting up your eyes through faith and trust and turning away from sin, and you want to put your faith in him today, I invite you, come forward. We've got people that want to talk with you and show you how you can receive this child, how you can receive this light, and embrace him as your loving father forever and ever. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not indifferent to those that are dwelling in darkness. You saw your people Judah in the midst of all that dark and death shadow and gloom, and you said, I'm going to send light. I'm going to send light. And in the most unlikely way, that light came in a little child. It's what we celebrate at Christmas, Father, because we're all living in darkness without you. We all have a fearful gloom, a fear of death, a death shadow that hangs over us. Yet just like Judah was promised, we have a child. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Father, today we adore this wonderful counselor. We bow the knee to this mighty God. We run into the arms of this everlasting Father. And we put all our faith and trust in this Prince of Peace. Help us this Christmas season to lift up our eyes by faith and see this child. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.